to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Project Blue Limited and Commissioners for Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. The citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 30. And this case concerns property and in particular stamp duty, which is a tax paid whenever land is purchased. Most of the time this is fairly easy to work out and is based on the amount paid by the purchaser, but here things were made more complicated by the fact that the money in this case was raised by something called Ijara Finance in order to be compliant with Sharia law. To start us off, it's worth spending a minute explaining briefly how this works. Islamic law prohibits interest being charged on loans, but Ijara Finance represents a way to get around this. Essentially, it allows for the bank to lease the property back to the client, and instead of receiving interest, the bank charges rent on the lease until the property is eventually passed to the client. We can see a practical example of this by examining the case in front of us today. The client is Project Blue Limited, or PBL as we'll refer to them, and they wanted to buy Chelsea Barracks from the Ministry of Defence when they were sold in 2007. The bank in this case is Masraf al Rayyan and they offered to finance the deal for PBL. The key date for the purposes of Ijara Finance was the 29th of January 2008, because on that date PBL agreed to subsell the freehold to Masraf al Rayyan, and the bank, in turn, agreed to lease the property back to PBL, like we discussed in the context of Ijara Finance. A couple of days later, everything was completed and a number of significant events took place. The Ministry of Defence conveyed the freehold to PBL, who then conveyed the freehold to Masraf al Rayyan, and then they leased the barracks back to PBL. Meanwhile, the bank also secured their investment by effectively requiring PBL to eventually repurchase the freehold. At this point, everything is going according to plan, but in actual fact, as we mentioned at the start, the issue in this case is not directly to do with the financing of the purchase, but rather the tax that became due. This tax, which we mentioned at the start is called stamp duty, has to be paid whenever a property is purchased over a minimum threshold value. For commercial properties, that's £150,000. But given that Chelsea Barracks were bought for £959 million, it is fair to say that HM Revenue and Customs were expecting a significant amount of stamp duty as a result of this sale. The issue at the heart of this case was that this tax never materialised. On the one hand, PBL claimed that they were not liable for paying the stamp duty because under Section 45 of the Finance Act 2003, there is an exemption for those who subsell property. In other words, because they conveyed the barracks to Masraf al Rayyan, they arguably fell within the definition of Section 45 and did not have to pay stamp duty. On the other hand, the bank claimed something called Alternative Property Finance Relief under Section 71A of the Finance Act 2003. That provision specifically deals with situations where land is sold to a financial institution and then leased to a legal or natural person. Given that this describes what is happening in this case perfectly, Masraf al Rayyan also claimed that they did not have to pay stamp duty in relation to the sale or the lease. HMRC were not best pleased about all this and decided to go after PBL for the £38.36 million in tax that arose out of the sale. PBL appealed to the tax tribunal, but this backfired quite badly as HMRC managed to have the assessment of the amount owed increased 
to £50 million, so that it accounted for the total amount that the bank lent to PBL. PBL then rolled the dice again and appealed to the upper tribunal, where they argued that Masraf al Rayyan were not actually entitled to the alternative property finance relief in section 71A, and therefore it was the bank that had to pay stamp duty. For this argument to succeed, PBL had to prove that for the purposes of section 71A2, the seller of the property, or as the Act puts it, vendor, was the Ministry of Defence rather than themselves. This was an open question because remember that the land was first sold by Ministry of Defence to PBL, but then again from PBL to Masraf al Rayyan. The upper tribunal held that PBL were the vendor, but the Court of Appeal disagreed, and so if the Ministry of Defence were the vendor, then Masraf al Rayyan were not exempt from stamp duty. Their reasoning for this was based on Section 45.3 of the Finance Act which they interpreted as disregarding the first contract between the MOD and PBL, and so it was impossible for PBL to be the vendor. The question around the £50 million tax bill remained open as the case came before the Supreme Court, which is where we pick it up. The justices of the Supreme Court acknowledged that if sections 45 and 71A of the Finance Act were taken in isolation, then they would operate in the way that PBL argued, i.e. the law would grant relief to the bank from stamp duty, as well as an exemption to PBL. In spite of this, the reason that PBL were not successful in this case was because Parliament had already themselves acknowledged this gap in the law that could lead to the non-payment of stamp duty, and had legislated to do something about it. To be precise, Section 75A of the Finance Act was inserted, and shows us that the Ministry of Defence was the vendor and, applying a purposive approach based on the facts of this case, PBL was the purchaser. At first glance, this might make it appear that the justices were going to agree with the Court of Appeal, and that was only emphasised when it was also held that Section 45.3 did indeed apply and caused the original contract between the Ministry of Defence and PBL to be disregarded. However, within the context of Section 71A2, it was in actual fact PBL who were the vendor, and so the upper tribunal did get that question right. The reasoning behind this is that there is nothing within that section to suggest the subsale, like the one from PBL to the bank, is not included within the provision. And furthermore, the supposed exception in section 45.3 does not impact section 71a. Nevertheless, the key question remained, who has a chargeable interest for the purpose of paying stamp duty. To answer, we can return to section 75a, which invites us to look at all of those dealings that were, quote, involved in connection with, end quote, the original sale of the property by MOD. Therefore, by looking at the transaction as a whole, we can see that it is PBL who acquire a chargeable interest after their subsale of the property to Masraf al Rayyan and then the subsequent lease of that same property back to PBL. Section 75A also makes provision for the amount of stamp duty that has to be paid, and you'll remember that there was a question about whether this was £38.36 million or £50 million. Once again, we have to look at the transactions between the Ministry of Defence, PBL and Masraf al Rayyan as a whole, and then Section 75A5 tells us that stamp duty should be paid on, quote, the largest amount given by one person 
by way of consideration for the scheme transactions, end quote. So, what is the largest amount of money paid in relation to these transactions? Well, it isn't the £959 million paid by PBL to the MOD for Chelsea Barracks, but was instead the £1.25 billion paid by Masraf al-Rayyan to PBL. And so the stamp duty due is also the higher amount of £50 million. Lord Briggs did dissent in this case and put forward an argument along the lines that the narrative of there being a gap in the law that Parliament sought to fill via Section 75A is unconvincing, and that the legislation could be read in such a way so that the Ministry of Defence is the vendor and stamp duty would be payable. There is something to this, and it does make sense that the body originally selling the property, the Ministry of Defence, should be the vendor across all of the relevant sections of the Finance Act. But in the end, it might also be hard to equate this with the finding of a chargeable interest, where stamp duty would be owed by either PBL or Masraf al-Rayyan. Finally, there was another, more academic argument put forward that had the potential to simplify things. In Emmett and Farrand on title, it is suggested that the types of agreement that derive from Ijara finance and Sharia law in general operate in a similar manner to a mortgage, so why should they not basically be treated as a mortgage in the eyes of the law? This is an excellent proposal and would eliminate a significant amount of the confusion generated by these agreements and any loopholes in the law. Nevertheless, the justices did not address this apart from to say that it is not compatible with the current statutory regime under the Finance Act 2003. We could spend some time now analysing these arguments and discussing their merits, but instead I would like to spend the rest of this episode thinking about one of the other arguments raised by PBL's lawyers. Is the way that English law operates discriminatory against Islam by not taking into account the principles of Sharia law and the prohibition against charging interest. The Supreme Court almost dismissed this out of hand and simply held that PBL were not a victim for the purposes of the Human Rights Act 1998, and even if they were, the tax legislation is a proportional means of achieving a legitimate aim. That doesn't mean that this isn't a serious political issue though, and worthy of consideration by Parliament. If we asked the general public about the implementation of Sharia law in the UK, then there would be some understandable trepidation, and also some outright antipathy. The policy in relation to criminal punishments can appear draconian, while in the area of family law, Muslim views with regards to women is generally very regressive. Any sentiment that leads in the direction of cultural openness and pluralism comes up against more fundamental Western democratic principles that underpin British society. In the area of finance, however, there is much greater scope for inclusivity because it is a less controversial area and adapting the relevant legislation does not come at the cost of giving credence to less desirable social practices. As a matter of fact, there are aspects of Islamic finance where the UK government has proved itself to be very open. So-called sukuk bonds that are compliant with Sharia law have been issued and tax laws have been adapted to deal less harshly with investment partnerships like the Mudarabah. The problem is that so much of Islamic finance and investment is based around property and rent, so there is a risk of being taxed on both the income and the property 
therefore putting Muslims at a severe disadvantage compared to other investors. Things like stamp duty are now much less of an issue, due to the exemptions that have been carved out not only in the 2003 Finance Act, like we saw in this episode, but also the 2009 Finance Act, which made significant steps in this regard as well. Nevertheless, taxes such as VAT are still due on rent payments, and here it is much harder to create an exception, not least because of European Union level requirements that the country is still subject to. Overall, a fine balance has to be struck. On the one hand, the Islamic faith cannot have its own tax regime within the UK that runs parallel to the existing legislation. But on the other hand, the UK should be open and flexible to the needs of Islamic finance. The extent of the UK government's flexibility is actually remarkable, and something to be welcomed, but is also perhaps not too surprising. Islamic finance is worth $1.3 trillion globally, and a slice of that pie could prove incredibly lucrative to the UK economy. Furthermore, the City of London is recognised across the world as a major player in the finance industry, and not accommodating such a significant chunk of that business would set the capital back compared to its competitors in Europe and the US. Investment from the Middle East is also playing a key role in infrastructure projects of national importance. The Chelsea Barracks is only one example, and others include major landmarks such as the Shard, Battersea Power Station, and the Olympic Village. In the end, the case that we have looked at today shows exactly the opposite of the law discriminating on grounds of religion. The provisions of the Finance Act deliberately seek to accommodate Islamic finance by avoiding stamp duty having to be paid twice. Whenever a person or a company buys a piece of property, it is the law that stamp duty has to be paid to the government. The fact that Muslims are not treated any differently shows a system that is operating well. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast. Thanks as ever to bensound.com who provides the theme music. If you want to find out more about me and my um, work, you can go to uklawweekly.com and sign up for the mailing list. I'll be back with another episode next week, but in the meantime, bye!